mysterious readers. Next, on Book TV's Afterwards, 60 Minutes correspondent Scott Pelley discusses major news events he's covered as a reporter and offers his thoughts on a free press. He's interviewed by CNN political analyst David Gregory. Afterwards is a weekly interview program with relevant guest hosts interviewing top nonfiction authors about their latest work. Scott, it's great to see you. Congratulations on this book. Well, thank you very much, David. Great to be with you. So this is, this is fun for me because I, I always remind you of this. That's the only way you remember. But about 25 years ago, I was a young reporter trying to build my career. And I cornered you in a local newsroom in Albuquerque, New Mexico, to quiz you then about your career. And so for me to just continue the conversation is great. I'll just pick up where I left off 25 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I, remember, I remember that very clearly. And then you and I worked uh, opposite each other. You were at NBC covering the trial of Tim McVeigh back in uh, those days in Denver. I did. I, that's right. And, uh, and, and went on actually uh, to marry after the trial was over one of the, one of the lead prosecutors. So Oklahoma City is and that uh, horrible event uh, is something that's, that stayed with me, but also uh, in, a, in a pleasant way in the aftermath of, of all of it. Scott, let me, let me start with journalism. This book, Truth Worth Telling, is really an example of a wonderful career in journalism and journalism done the right way with a sense of purpose and a sense of meaning. So I jump right to the idea of where you think the state of journalism is today. And you write so jarringly in your book, that the dividing line that matters now is the one between journalism and junk. That is, that is what's crucial right now. I, uh, it seems to me, David, you know, never before in human history has more information been available to more people, and that's a great thing. But it's also true that for the first time, never in our history has more bad information been available to more people. Uh, so much of what we see on the internet uh, is cynically cast by foreign hostile governments, by cynical politicians to, to bend and change American opinion. I really ask myself the question, what's the fastest way to destroy a democracy? Is it war? Is it terrorism? Is it another Great Depression? I don't think so. I think the fastest way to destroy a democracy is to poison the information. That's exactly what we're seeing right now. We've moved, in my view, from the information age to the disinformation age. And that's exactly where people like you and I come in. That's, that's what journalism was invented for, was to be an antidote to gossip. And so much of what we're seeing online these days is just simple gossip. It's gossip, it's the influence of social media where it's really the amplification of opinion. And yet, here we also are sitting astride a, a reality in the news business where there's such great interest, there's such a high level of engagement, and we see traditional news sources, although ironically more in print, I would argue, than in broadcast, um, doubling down on their commitment to investigative journalism and good old-fashioned accountability journalism. Do you agree? I do. You know, somebody stopped me on the street the other day and said, oh, this must be a terrible time to be a reporter. 
And I said, no, yeah. no, this is a great time. This is the best time to be a reporter because with all the criticism that has been focused on us, particularly by the administration, the American people are now watching us. And this is a wonderful opportunity for us to show the American people what we do, how we do it, and what our principles are. And all of that is true. And again, people are engaged. But, you know, you, you have, as I have had, a very traditional path, which we'll get into, uh, into the ranks of journalism. What has been difficult as someone who is not an opinion journalist, someone who calls it straight, reports it straight, is that people like you are increasingly seen more skeptically by those who condemn an independent media as being something of a facade, of a, of a, of a charade, that there is no such thing. How have you dealt with that? You know, I think the bias is almost always in the eye of the beholder, not, mm -hmm. not in the journalism, but by the people who are watching it. You've done and I've done interviews with presidents, for example, in which the mail comes in 50-50. You, you dirty Democrat, you tried to get the president and you couldn't do it. And then the next letter is, you dirty Republican, you tried to skewer the president and you weren't able to do it. It's the same interview. But the viewers are very, very different. Uh, what worries me today, David, is I fear that the American people are withdrawing into what, what I call citadels of confirming information, where they're choosing media that tells them that what they already believe is right. And that's just no way to run a democracy. You can't run a democracy that way. Compromise is the only way to move forward. And so we have to listen to one another. We can't wall ourselves off in these digital citadels of confirming information. And so that's the message of this book. It is something that I feel is the biggest threat to our country, is this combination of poisoned information and the American people withdrawing into opinion media instead of coming onto the mainstream. You know, I hear so many people talk about, you know, oh, the mainstream media, the mainstream media. That's where I want to be. I want to be in the mainstream. I don't want to be on some tributary off to the left or off to the right. The mainstream is where the American people are. And I'm proud of the mainstream media, and uh, I hope it remains robust because our democracy depends on it. Let me pick up on that, Scott, the notion of the mainstream media, which I agree with you is, um, it's funny on a couple of levels, ironic on a couple of levels. That which is uh, considered mainstream, which is a pejorative term, the way a lot of people use it, would include outfits that never intended to be mainstream, like, say, Fox News. You don't get much more mainstream uh, than that in terms of being at the heart of what people are watching and consuming. Uh, and yet it seemed as a, a pejorative. There's no question that, that journalists bear some responsibility for what has been a crisis of confidence. You see this, you experience it as you uh, speak around the country, as you meet people around the country, that people tend to view us more skeptically. And I take your point about that is from where they sit. It's their point of view. But whether it's uh, missteps uh, that are large crises in journalism uh, or the, the nature of the coverage of, say, the 2016 race, giving Trump too much attention or, or uh, missing, in effect, what was the, the Trump 
uh, election that we're, we're missing some things and it's eroding confidence. Do you, do you, how do you assess it? Well, first of all, I think it's a good thing that the public is skeptical of media. I think they should be skeptical of media. I think they should be very skeptical of government. Skepticism, but not cynicism. We should be very aware, particularly now in this internet age that we're in, very aware of what we're reading and what we're seeing and be skeptical about those things. That's a, that's a healthy thing in my view. You know, I worry, David, that the viewer sees a lot of journalists, particularly in television, who are more interested in celebrity than being credible. Uh, I just gnash my teeth. My wife digs her fingernails into my knee when we're watching a movie and we see a, a reporter, a real reporter, appearing in a movie. You know, one night he or she is giving you the presidential election numbers and the next night they're in a movie reporting some alien invasion from space. I worry a great deal about that, actually, because no audience member is going to confuse which is real and which is fake. That's not the point. The point is, what is that reporter's motivation? Are they more interested in being a celebrity than credible? And if so, what are they willing to do in order to be a celebrity? I, I worry about that. Journalism is public service, as you well know, and it also has nothing whatever to do with being popular. You know, if you're doing journalism correctly, you're more likely to be unpopular because you're telling people unpopular truths, but the truth nonetheless. So I think there have been many factors that have eroded confidence in the media. But consider this, you know, James Madison in uh, 1800 wrote that freedom of the press is the right that guarantees all the others. Madison believed, and he put freedom of the press in the First Amendment, he believed that if all of us, he used the word press in an expansive way, if all of us could say what we want to say, write what we want to write, read what we want to read, then all of our other rights would be protected. Madison believed that freedom of speech, freedom of the press was just that important. I would argue to you that there is no democracy without journalism, because the people have to have independent, reliable information. The founders gave us the power, right, over the government. Mm -hmm. So the only way we can exercise that power is with information. And so even though the audience has become skeptical of the media, I would like the audience to remember how integral we are to the functioning of the democracy. We both covered the White House. You covered uh, Bill Clinton's second term. I covered all eight years of, of President Bush. Gosh, how would you approach covering the White House now? There is a level of toxicity in, on that beat. And, you know, we were there covering, you know, big issues, uh, war and peace, scandal. But the level of toxicity now is different because we have a president who, who so disingenuously um, but in many ways effectively um, dismisses the news media and those journalists covering him as enemies of the people. And what's sadder to me than him saying it is there's a reservoir of people in the country who believe it. 
Well, there are, there is some sector of the country that that does believe that because the president says it, and that's of course very very regrettable because of all the things that I just said about the founders and Madison and that there just cannot be a democracy without independent free-flowing information for everyone to use. You know, when I was anchoring the CBS Evening News in the first months of the president's term, uh, I was thinking that he would shift from campaign mode into governing mode and that the falsehoods would stop. Of course, that was naive in that moment. The falsehoods continued right into uh, the first days, weeks, months of his administration. So on the evening news and on many other broadcasts, CNN as well, of course, um, we just started telling people the president said this, it's false, this is, these are what the real facts are. And then the president uh, described us as uh, the enemy of the American people. Um, ridiculous, because we are the American people. Uh, journalists are, are, are your neighbors, they're, they're the people who live in your town, write about your town. We bring vitality to the national conversation. We serve the public interest. We serve the public safety. And you just couldn't have a great America without a great journalism function within the country. I went to the White House. Uh, I was invited to the White House to have lunch, me and some other anchors, with the president. And I, I said, Mr. President, the enemy of the American people rhetoric concerns me because I'm afraid it might incite violence. I'm afraid that some poor, deranged individual is going to walk into a TV station or a newspaper and shoot the receptionist because we're the enemy of the American people. And the president thought for a second, and he said, you know, I just don't worry about that. So I took him aside. I was, I was thinking he might have just been performing for the table. And so I took him aside after the lunch, very privately, and I said, I really hope you'll think about this. And he said, okay, I'll think about it. But nothing really changed. A few weeks ago, I got a call from the FBI. And they were telling me that the the bomber who mailed the dozen or so bombs to various people that he felt were enemies of the president had a file on me and my family and my home address. Mm. Well, this is exactly what I'm talking about. I'm concerned that all of this, not all of it, but a lot of this political rhetoric on the, on the right and on the left is getting way out of hand. And we need to think about public safety. Uh, all of this name-calling has just become way too much. And we need to think about the, the safety of men, women, and children in this country. And the, the, the idea, the very idea of bombs going through our post offices and through the public mail um, is just a horror to me. And I think it's because of this rhetoric that we're hearing. It is chilling. Um, the power of platform, therefore, in journalism is really important. Um, I speak for myself, but I, I know uh, so many others in our line of work. There isn't anybody who doesn't look up on Sunday night and watch 60 Minutes and wish they could do that job. And you've had that job, and you've had that platform. And the things that strikes me, I remember me meeting uh, a, an associate producer years ago who worked for Mike Wallace, and we were sitting at lunch, and I got the first you know, derivative of the Don Hewitt, the famed former executive producer of 60 Minutes, his... Um, you know, his lesson about what the mission of 60 Minutes was. And he said to me, 
He said, you know, issues are for theologians and philosophers. We tell stories. The power of story is what you do. It's what you've related in this book because the stories that you have told, the people you have met, have formed you as a journalist. Why is that the building block of your career that's probably the most meaningful to you? Well, in some sense, I learned it from Don Hewitt, as you were saying. You know, you used to go into Don's office and you'd say, Don, climate change, the big deal. We've got to do a story about it. And he would wave you off and he would say, that's an issue. Tell me a story. And what he meant by that was, if you find the narrow, fascinating story that illuminates all of the issues of climate change, that's when you have it. You know, it, it struck me. Uh, Steven Spielberg, for example, he, he didn't write a movie called D-Day. Right. He, he directed a movie called Saving Private Ryan. You learned everything you needed to know about D-Day in that very personal story. He didn't do a movie called The Holocaust. He did a movie called Schindler's List. And again, you learned everything you needed to know about The Holocaust in that very personal story. Well, that's, that's what we do at 60 Minutes. Uh, we're going into our 52nd season, next season. It's, um, I, I say this humbly and with just enormous gratitude. It's the most successful television program of any kind in history. And uh, we are working like hell on it every week to make it as good as we possibly can. How does it work, Scott? Take people inside a little bit. How do you think about what you want to do, what stories you want to tell, and then how does it get there? Well, mechanically, uh, I have about a dozen people who work with me, producers and associate producers, like the one you were speaking of earlier. And we all get together and we're going to do, I'm going to do about 20 stories in the course of a season. And so the tension always is, what are those 20 stories going to be? We could do 200 stories, but we want to focus on the very best things that we can do. Very often, to me, that comes down to public service. Can we do some good here? Maybe exposing corruption or uh, the work, for example, my colleague Bill Whitaker has done on opioids this past season. It's been an enormous public service to this country. Um, can we illuminate a problem that most people aren't aware of? Or can we just tell a fascinating story about someone who might be very inspiring to the country as well? So we go through those ideas and then the producers go out and they start uh, researching the story and interviewing people. And that is an important moment because we really only want to interview people who are great storytellers themselves. And so sometimes the producers will come back and say, you know, we tried, we just can't find the right people to put in this story to make it a 60-minute story. And so we'll discard that one and move on to the next. You know, people think that Bill Whitaker and I and Leslie Stahl and Steve Croft are all in the same office and we're all working together. But actually, it's very stovepiped. Each of us has our own team. And I have no idea what Leslie Stahl or Steve Croft are doing. I see their stories for the very first time on Sunday night at 7 o'clock Eastern time. So I'm always surprised and delighted when I see those. <laughs> but as, as you know, David, the, as I like to tell young people, and I'm constantly telling my staff, they just roll their eyes these days, but I always say there's no such thing as good writing. There's only good rewriting. 
And so I think the audience would be amazed at how many times we write, edit, rewrite, edit, rewrite, and edit these stories before they ever see them. A story, that, a typical story that we shoot, if it's not on a pressing deadline, we'll go through 12 iterations of it. Cut the entire thing, watch it, pick the things that are working well, throw out the bits that aren't working well, rewrite it again and again and again. Check the facts again and again and again. I think, I think the audience would be amazed, David, at, at the fact-checking effort at CNN or at CBS or any of the other major news organizations. Uh, we, we really sweat bullets over these things. And none of this is cavalier, as you well know. I wish the audience understood that a little bit better, and it's really up to us to give them a better look into, into what we're doing. But your question was, mechanically, how do we put 60 Minutes together? And there's the answer. So, you know, I'm going to be a little self-indulgent here because I've been a big admirer of your work. But when we talk about impact on an audience, you know, where you tell a story that people feel um, not just hear, not just see, but they understand something, it comes from some of the craftsmanship of the storytelling that's specific to our medium that we love, which is television. Um, and I could go through many stories. I didn't need the book for this, uh, but you write about them. One you didn't write about, well, you may have written about it. I may have missed it. But one story I remember in particular, and I've, I know people who've worked with you, who, who, and, and part of your reputation is that you are, as a story producer, you think a lot in the field, and you're very precise in the field about what, because you're a photographer as well, what you shoot, and how ultimately the story comes together. I always remember a piece you did for the evening news about the destruction of what was left of the Murrah building in Oklahoma City. You had multiple cameras set up uh, to capture the implosion of the building, but that wasn't the story. The story was the impact on those who watched it. Talk a little bit about how a day like that comes together where you're thinking about, I'm gonna use all of my tools in my basket here to, to really make an impression, to tell a story. Well, in, in that particular case, David, it, it, it occurred to me that everyone was focusing on the building, um, but the, the building was a symbol of what had been, what had been lost, the enormous burden on the families in Oklahoma City. Everyone, as you remember, everyone knew someone who had been impacted by, the, by that terrible act of terrorism. And so I, I wanted to turn the camera around, if you will, away from the building and, and search the, the hearts and minds of the, of the people who were watching the building be destroyed, uh, ultimately in that implosion. It just seems to me that every, every story is, is about the people and the way they're reacting to something, the emotions that they're feeling, the way that they think about the things that are happening in the world today. You know, it reminds me of, a, of an anecdote in the book. I was in Paris anchoring the evening news the day of the ISIS attack that killed 120 Parisians a few years ago. And that night it was raining and I was watching a parade of people come to a makeshift memorial in the street, on the cobblestone street there in Paris. And children, men, women, and I was looking in their faces in the reflected light of the candles that they were holding, and it just hit me all at once. I thought, I have seen these people before. 
I saw them at the World Trade Center on 9-11. I saw them in Oklahoma City after the bombing. I've seen them in every language, in every culture around the world. They had this expression on their face of utter bewilderment, sort of what's the meaning of life? And it occurred to me that maybe we're asking the wrong question. Don't ask the meaning of life. Life is asking, what's the meaning of you? And that is really the organizing principle around the book. And that's what caused me to start to write the book, was that I had met so many people, as you have, all around the world who exhibit the greatest principles and values during the most difficult times. And so I, I wanted to write about those people. Um, it, it's a memoir, yes, but I wanted to write a memoir that wasn't about me because I figured nobody would care about that. <laughs> but it occurred to me that I had, in fact, met the most incredible people in this profession that you and I hold so dear. And, uh, and so that was the device that I used to try to tell those stories about the people and what made them great. You talk throughout the book. You write about other people, colleagues, who have had a tremendous influence on you. Um, as a war correspondent, as you have been through your career covering uh, the major conflicts of recent, recent memory, um, you relied on the influence of, of your former colleague, Bob Simon, the legendary war correspondent, Middle East correspondent for CBS News, of course, 60 Minutes correspondent, who died uh, tragically on the West Side Highway in a car accident, uh, despite braving and surviving all, all the dangerous war zones that he'd been in. Um, what, what did he teach you about storytelling and about journalism? You know, I learned from Bob mostly by observing. Uh, he wasn't the type to be a patient teacher and mentor, but he, his work was just titanic to me, just amazing. And I'll, I'll tell you a quick anecdote that I, that I relate in the book. Um, we were in uh, 1991. We, were, we had a bureau in Dharan, Saudi Arabia. And this was in the run-up to the Gulf War. Saddam Hussein was launching Scud missiles from Iraq into Dharan. And we were, had a bureau set up in a hotel. And the protocol was that when the air raid siren went off, the uh, lights would go out, the air raid warden would come in and escort everybody down to the bomb shelter. So the first time this happened, I'm a young correspondent at CBS at this time. I probably hadn't been there more than a year. The air raid siren goes off, the lights go out, the warden comes in, we all go down to the basement. So now I'm in the bomb shelter, and I'm looking around, and I don't see Bob. Well, I'm worried about Bob. I figure, oh my God, Bob's not in the bomb shelter. So I leave the bomb shelter and go looking for him, and I found him. He's on the roof of the building with a live camera narrating what's happening as the warheads are dropping around. <laughs> and it just hit me, I guess, like a Scud missile. It <laughs> just hit me, and I said to myself, that is what a war correspondent does. And I had seen my last bomb shelter. And, you know, it, it was just that moment. I mean, this is exactly right what Edward R. Murrow did, standing on top of the roof of the BBC, recording the blitz 
as the Nazi bombers came over London. Here's Bob Simon doing exactly the same thing. That is what a war correspondent does. Is it hazardous? Of course. Many of our colleagues, friends of ours, both of us, friends of ours, have been killed. But when America goes to war, all of America has to go. And the way that all of America goes to war is through independent reporting by the war correspondent on the battlefield. Indispensable, absolutely indispensable to a democracy at war. And so the risks are great, but when you see your colleagues like Bob Simon taking the risks, you begin to understand what is required of you as a reporter and as a war correspondent. Did you work? The other thing I will say is that, if, if I may, the other thing I will say is that Bob was just an exquisite writer. I would get transcripts of his scripts so that I could see them on paper to see the way they were constructed. Uh, I learned more about writing from Bob Simon than just about anybody in my career. Well, and this is why I've always been so jealous of 60 Minutes, because you are at a platform where that is still prized, where the craftsmanship is prized. And I know you would you would uh, uphold those values, too, on the CBS Evening News. And I enjoyed all of my years uh, reporting for NBC Nightly News. But you and I both know that in the cacophony of the news media space, there is a lot more talking than there is writing. There's a lot more instant commentary than there is craftsmanship. And I know writing in particular from you, from one of the first stories I ever saw when you were at WFAA in Dallas doing a big, where you got a tremendous amount of time, I point out, on the, you know, after a, a, a tornado, where you would write with such precision. Um, it's something that uh, Bob Simon did. It's something that Martin Fletcher did for NBC, where they understood the power of images, but of good detail in writing, which is something you impart in the book, which I think is so important for aspiring journalists to read and to think about whether they're writing as as journalists or in any other platform. You know, the last chapter in the book is called To a Young Journalist, in in which I try to impart some of this wisdom that I received from Don Hewitt, Bob Simon, and and others. And my hope at this part of my career is to be a stepping stone for this next generation of journalists moving forward and hope to create in them a, a zest for what we do, uh, a, uh, a respect for the role of journalism in democracy, and then a real appreciation for the art of what we do, uh, the writing and the photography and the video editing. Uh, it's, it, it is an artwork. You know, we are blessed at 60 Minutes because Each of those 60-minute stories is about 12 minutes long. It's a few seconds on either side of 12 minutes. And what those really are are many documentaries. So much of what we have to do on the CBS Evening News or or on CNN, what have you, uh, is, you know, our stories have to be a minute or two minutes or three minutes long on the way outside. On 60 minutes with those pieces running 12 minutes, that really gives you an opportunity to do some writing and to do something with a little bit of a little bit of style and people all often ask me as you did earlier how has 60 minutes survived all this time <laughs> i think that's one of the i think that's one of the answers i think the audience really appreciates the quality i would agree with that 
you have a great lesson to young people as well, not just aspiring journalists, but it, it resonates with me because it's what I tried to do. Um, you worked uh, in Dallas. You grew up in Lubbock. You talk about your time as a, uh, working as a, as a copy boy uh, at, at 15 years old and ultimately tried to get in the door at WFAA, which was the ABC, as still as the ABC affiliate in Dallas, what people may not know, that was functionally a network news operation at the time that you were breaking in, in the 80s. And uh, it wasn't easy to get into the door uh, of an office by the news director, Marty Haig, a legendary figure in our, in our business, who was the news director then. But there was a lesson in persistence about getting into this business that you had to deal with. David, nobody ever wanted to hire me. <laughs> not at not at any level. I took a bulldozer and bashed my way into every place I ever worked. Um, and so uh, Marty didn't want to hire me, and I just kept at him and kept at him. He finally hired me to work one day a week, eight hours a week. Uh, and then finally, I just worked so hard at that one little job that they, they gave me a full-time job there. I'll, I'll tell you quickly another anecdote in the book. CBS desperately did not want to hire me. <laughs> they, had heard, they had heard of my work uh, at WFAA and some work that I'd done with refugees in Guatemala, some stories that I'd done on that subject. And so they invited me to come up to New York and meet Dan Rather and everyone and see if they wanted to make me a correspondent. Well, I had two days of visits in the CBS headquarters in New York. I thought it went great. I went back home to Dallas. They never called me back. They didn't even call me to say no. They just didn't call. The next year, I kept working on my material. I came back and saw them again, went home. They never called me back. The third year, a friend of mine called from CBS and said, hey, they're hiring three new correspondents. Now's your chance. So I called the director of recruitment at CBS, and I said, hey, it's Scott Pelley again. I want to know if you might want to look at me as one of those correspondents. And he said, and this is a direct quote, Scott, we know your work, and there's no need for you to apply. <laughs> and I said, well, have you filled those jobs? And he said, well, no. Why? And I said, I'm coming to see you. I'm going to get on a plane right now. I just need 10 minutes of your time. Now, in the Tom Hanks Hollywood version of the movie, I get the job, yeah. but it didn't happen then either. <laughs> and it was another year. It was four years. I was an overnight success after four years of trying. And that's the important thing that young people need to know to get all the way back around to your question. I tell young journalists in, in uh, college, you're going to be told no 30 to 1. Collect those no's. Throw them over your shoulder. It's just one more step toward yes. The only people who don't work in our industry are the people who give up. And you're another living example of that. No, true enough. I mean, I, I remember I used to tell, tell people like yourself, I'd make a point of meeting someone like you because you're a bit older than I am. And I would say, I'd feel the need to say, listen, I'm going to achieve X. It's important that you know that. And I would walk out thinking, they don't care what I intend to do. It's ridiculous. But it was a, my own statement of ambition to say, I'm going to get to these people, and then I'm going to find out how they did it, and I'm going to announce my eventual uh, ar arrival. So, you know, what about your, your parents? Talk about the influences on you, not just to, to go after a, a career in a profession that uh, you thought would be meaningful, but what shaped your values as someone who thought of this as a public service and uh, was worth that it was worth this kind of sacrifice. 
Well, my parents were classic greatest generation parents. They had grown up in the Dust Bowl of Oklahoma. Uh, my father, the minute he got out of high school, uh, signed up for the Army Air Force, and he flew 35 missions over Germany um, during uh, World War II. My mother was a riveting Rosie. She built airplanes in the, in the United States when, when Dad was uh, flying them over Germany. And so there's just a lot of grit in in my parents and people like them. Um, the people that I grew up with in, in Lubbock, Texas, it's a farming community. Uh, people lived and died by the weather and all kinds of um, pestilence that would attack the cotton crops on some years and then other years would be great. And you really saw perseverance in those people. I mean, they had overcome the Dust Bowl, the Great Depression, the Second World War. And you begin to think, well, <laughs> if they can do that, right, I can, I can aspire to do things as well and to persevere uh, in much easier times compared to those. Mm. Uh, my mother was my co-conspirator, though. My, my career in pursuit of the truth uh, actually began with a lie. Uh, <laughs> I wanted a job. I, I wanted a job at the Lubbock Avalanche Journal newspaper because I thought I wanted to be a photographer at the time. And the problem was they only hired kids who were 16 and up to be uh, copy boys, and I was only 15. So I lied about my age, I got the job, and my co-conspirator mom would drop me off a couple of blocks from the paper so that nobody could see I didn't have a driver's license. And uh, this may be the first time the Avalanche Journal is hearing about this, I don't know. but. Uh, <laughs> But that's how, that's how it all began. And uh, one day I was working on my high school homework in the wire room back then, and the, the executive editor came in. I was, remember, I wanted to be a photographer. The executive editor came in and said, do you want to be a reporter? And I said, well, I, I don't know. I never gave it any thought. He said, well, do you or don't you? And I said, well, sure, I guess. And he sat me in front of a typewriter, which I had no idea how to operate, and I've been a reporter ever since. I was 16 years old. You are a student of history, and uh, there's lots of ways to know this, but one of the ways I know it is, you know, when, when you cover the White House, um, that you spend a lot of time traveling, and it's wonderful because you get a chance to connect with your colleagues over long periods of time, trips around the world and around the country, and Ann Compton, the wonderful veteran uh, uh, correspondent of ABC would say, you know, the thing about Scott is he'd come on these trips and he'd have some major tome of history that he'd be reading. So you're always <laughs> studying. But you know, the, 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 also the great thing about being a journalist is that we are, we have this front row seat on history. And two stories stand out. Your coverage of uh, Oklahoma City, of course, you covered the event, but you also covered the trial of Timothy McVeigh, um, as I did. Uh, and I was covering the White House during 9-11. Uh, and of course, among other things, you did an amazing uh, hour documentary, or maybe it was two, on, um, one, on the one-year anniversary of 9-11. And I've been thinking a lot as we come up, you know, next year will be the 25th anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing. And so many people don't remember it. So many younger Americans for, don't think about it in its importance because it was displaced by 9-11. But in meaningful ways, uh, both those events taken together changed America, changed our politics, changed journalism in some ways. And as you've been reflective about the response to those events, particularly 9-11, I wonder what you think those changes were and have been in this country. 
You know, David, so much time has passed, as you, as you just mentioned. It occurred to me recently that it's very likely that we have young troops fighting in Afghanistan today who were not born on 9-11, the reason that we're in Afghanistan. You certainly have a lot of people in the military today, a lot of young people in every walk of life who have read about those events only in history books, mm -hmm. which is remarkable to me. I was speaking with someone earlier today, in fact, and we were downtown in Manhattan, and I told him that it was, looking back, it was hard for me to believe that these things had actually happened. Mm that Oklahoma City, as you remember so well, was so monstrous. And then 9-11, uh, I, was, I was at the World Trade Center when the buildings came down. And I, I write in the book, the first chapter in the book is called Gallantry. And it's about what I witnessed with the firefighters of the FDNY as they went charging into those buildings, knowing the risk against just a chance that they might be able to help someone else. And so, Everything seemed to have changed in America because of those events. Um, I worry that the country is tilting, not, uh, is tilting away from healthy skepticism and into cynicism mm -hmm. because of the wars that occurred after the event of 9-11 and the way the Bush administration had, had not leveled with the American people about why we were getting into Iraq and what the evidence was in Iraq. This is such a wonderful, beautiful country. Um, I love America, as you do, with all of my heart. And I hope we will be able to move from the cynicism that we see, particularly in Washington today, to move back into an age of optimism for a new American century. Um, these have been difficult times, dark, difficult times, particularly with regard to terrorism and war. And it is... It is my hope that our young people who are coming up today are going to be able to put all of those things behind them and move into a much brighter future. And yet the lessons that you write about and that you covered at the time in great detail in Iraq, um, in Afghanistan, and then your interview with the former director of the CIA, George Tenet, speaks to an enormous challenge, which is how do governments and how do societies respond to fear when they are afraid. We were afraid after the Oklahoma City bombing in ways that many people don't remember this attack on the heartland. And what more people remember is how the country felt, the fear that people felt after 9-11. Your interview for 60 Minutes with George Tenet is something you write about powerfully because you wondered whether torture, what they called enhanced interrogation, the response to 9-11 ultimately compromised who we were as Americans. And you write at one point that he was, he was very animated in speaking to you and saying, basically, don't judge us. Don't judge the CIA until you've walked a mile in our shoes. And you wrote, there it was. George Tenet has never, will never acknowledge that the CIA's program was torture. But in that answer was the explanation for why he pressed for the authority to violate the law, the authority, which was enhanced authority that he got after the attacks of 9-11 by, by President Bush. Talk a little bit about that. Well, that Mike Wallace, uh, the great 60 Minutes correspondent, the original 60 Minutes correspondent, 
did a story immediately after 9-11 that asked the question, would America resort to torture in the war on terror? I was outraged by that story because I thought it was ridiculous. I thought it damaged the credibility of the broadcast. It was such a ridiculous idea. And of course it was exactly right. Um, the enhanced interrogation techniques were clearly uh, in violation of the U.S. anti-torture statute. One of the things, David, that has been so gratifying about writing this book is that I was eyewitness to many, many events, but in writing the book I was able to find all kinds of recently declassified documents and that sort of thing that have informed what it was I was seeing with my own eyes. And some of those documents came from the CIA archive that I went through. And there is a letter from CIA attorneys to the Justice Department that says essentially, these are the techniques we want to use. We realize they violate the law. And we would like you, the Justice Department, to tell us in writing in advance that you will not prosecute anyone who uses these techniques on behalf of the CIA. And the Attorney General didn't want to put this down on paper apparently, but the Attorney General at the time, John Ashcroft, uh, phoned back, and there's a record of that phone call in the CIA archive, and said, you're good to go. You can violate the law. Now, imagine the position the Bush administration is in. The worst attack ever on American soil since the Civil War uh, had just occurred on their watch. They were going to make sure that nothing like this could ever happen again. And as George Tennant said, I, I asked George Tennant, I said, why were these enhanced interrogation techniques necessary? And he said, because these are people who will never, ever, ever tell you a thing and would cut your throat the moment they got out of wherever they're being held. Tennant had never done an interview before. He had seen withering criticism about the days before 9-11, after 9-11, and the lead up to the Iraq War, all of which he was DCI, the Director of Central Intelligence. And so this was his first opportunity to answer all of that, and he just came at me. It's the most fun, if you will, that I've ever had in an interview because it was so engaging and so combative. And he, he kept saying, we do not torture people. We do not torture people. And um, it was a semantic debate because uh, clearly torture is what we were doing. As uh, Senator John McCain said when he co-sponsored the new anti-torture bill, John McCain told the, the, from the well of the Senate, said that we had lost our principles and we had to get back on the side of the angels. If I ask you about sketches and leadership, in a way, your coverage of politics, given your, you know, your, your great curiosity and love of, of you know, being a globetrotter to find stories, to be in a White House briefing room to cover a president is in some ways confining. And you tried to break out of that by almost covering the White House from the outside in. But you write about covering Bill Clinton, a great detail about first having an opportunity uh, to uh, meet at least Mrs. Clinton, 
Secretary Clinton during the interview about the Jennifer Flowers um, uh, scandal. You describe former President Bill Clinton as an earlier version of Donald Trump. Pretty unsparing. Well, that, that is unsparing, but what I'm talking about there very specifically is his ability and proclivity toward lying. Yeah. Uh, in his case, about one specific thing, not, not about policy, but about his own um, demons, shall we say, his own personal demons with regard to sexual predation, uh, which became infamous after a certain point in time. So by early Donald Trump, I mean this was somebody who would go to the American people and lie coldly in their face. President Trump has now elevated this into lying about just about everything, uh, including policy. Uh, President Clinton was a shrewd politician, uh, one of the brightest people, I think, that we've had in the White House in modern times, because he had a real command of the policies that they were working with and the policies that they wanted to change. You know, I uh, was very excited coming out of the Gulf War. It's 1992, the presidential campaign starting to spin up. I'd been assigned to the largely unknown governor of Arkansas, which was okay with me because I was a pretty new correspondent at CBS. And I, I write about this in the book. I got a phone call before New Hampshire uh, when I was supposed to join up with the Clinton campaign, and the national desk editor said, you got to go to Little Rock right now, your guy's dropping out of the race tomorrow. And I said, you got to be kidding me. My first presidential campaign that I'm going to cover for CBS News, and my guy's done? What happened? <laughs> and he said, there's a, woman, there's a woman who says she's had an affair with him, so he's out. We need you to go, um, go to Little Rock and do a story tomorrow for the evening news about how he's dropping out of the race. So I went to Little Rock right away. The campaign arranged for me to get on this small private jet with Governor Clinton, and he was flying to Manchester, New Hampshire. It's raining outside, of course, as Hollywood would have it. I'm sitting in the back of the plane. Governor Clinton walks on board, sits down right in front of me in an opposing seat. We are literally knee to knee, but he is looking through his shoes, doesn't look up at me at all, doesn't say a word. Airplane takes off. After a few minutes of dead silence, never acknowledging that I'm sitting right in front of him, I said, Governor, I'm Scott Pelley with CBS News. I'm going to be covering your campaign. And he looked up from his shoes and he said, well, let's hope it lasts a long time. <laughs> and then, as I say in the book, lasting turned out to be the special talent of both Bill and Hillary Clinton. Um, so I have spent a great deal of time with, uh, with both of the Clintons over, over these many years, uh, covering uh, President Clinton's first campaign, covering his White House in the second term, and then covering uh, his wife's campaigns as well. And you share a moment in the book after an interview where you expressed to her how inspired you've been by the fight she's always had. And, and she said something that to you was kind of revealing, I thought. Absolutely. You know, she... You, you have to, you can agree or disagree with her politics and her policy, but you have to admire, as I put it to her on that day, the, the fight in her. Never, ever, ever give in. Never give up. 
almost Churchillian, if you will, in, in, in the way that she pursues politics. And after an interview for 60 Minutes, just before the Democratic National Convention, when they were introducing Tim McCain as her, uh, Tim Kaine, I beg your pardon, as the uh, running mate. After the interview, when the cameras stopped and the microphones were cold, I leaned forward and, and, and sort of took her hand and I said, uh, Madam Secretary, people will agree or disagree about your politics and your policies, but I've always admired the fight in you. And she leaned up into my ear and whispered almost inaudibly, if they had left me alone, I probably would have quit by now. Wow. <laughs> and to, to me, uh, David, exactly as you said, to me that was very, very revealing. That as long as they were going to punch, she was going to punch back. And uh, that, was, that was the kind of fight within her. Um, she credited her mother, actually, with giving her that spirit. So as you look forward, we've, we've all in the journalistic community been stung in our political coverage by the unforeseen and uh, learned to look more skeptically at conventional wisdom. But here we are in the, in the early days of a 2020 campaign uh, that could very well not really be about the future, as President Bush was told me that all campaigns are about uh, the future and not looking backward. Uh, how do you handicap what you're seeing out there right now? Well, with the 24 Democrats, you, kn you know exactly what's going on here. This is a campaign for campaign contributions. What they're trying to do now is not appeal to the voters so much, but to appeal to Democratic money around the country. In the not-too-distant future, that money's going to co coalesce around three, four, five candidates, and the rest of the 24 are going to drop away. And then those candidates will proceed into the uh, primaries. But that's what we are seeing right now. Um, there are a lot of candidates, but that's really why there are so many candidates. They're trying to see who becomes the most credible among the Democratic donors. Um, you know, the president going forward, as you know, David, the president's approval rating is almost unique in presidential history in that it moves in such a narrow range. Somewhere from the mid-30s, maybe to 40 percent, never beyond that. No matter what happens, he's always in that very narrow range. Strip the names and the parties off of all of this. If you just looked at the numbers, I would be very worried about that incumbent president um, because uh, of a popularity rating that is really only ever in the 30s. I noticed something uh, when I was doing the research on the book. You know, I was wondering how many times in American history has a candidate won the popular vote and lost in the uh, electoral college? And the answer to that question is five times. And three of the five times the candidate lost after one term. The only time the candidate has been successful in losing the popular vote and winning the electoral vote and winning a second term was George W. Bush. Mm. So if I look back at history and I look back at that narrow window of approval, 
Um, I would be worried if I was running the campaign for Donald Trump. Scott, I'll end with this. As you are looking back on your career, which is still flourishing, so there's many stories yet to tell, you do write to young journalists. You care about the future of our profession, uh, both the vocational piece of it and the business piece of it. Do you think that your career, I don't mean to sound maudlin about this, but is your career available to other people? Could you, could, could, if you were starting today, could you do it the same way? Would it be available to you in the same way that you've experienced it? Or has the business changed so much that it'll be fundamentally different? The, the business has changed so much that it will be fundamentally different, different in ways that I probably can't appreciate. As you alluded to earlier, when you and I were coming up, there were three television networks, as God intended. But, um, <laughs> right. Now, uh, on, on the one hand, I tell young people there have never been more places to work, which is true. I mean, there have yeah. never been more jobs in journalism than there are right now, and that is a great thing. Uh, what I want to emphasize to young people, and particularly in that last chapter of the book, is that there has been a revolution in media, but it's a revolution in distribution. We, we don't get the paper thrown on our doorstep anymore. We're reading it on our iPhone. We're streaming the evening news at any time of day that we want. We're watching CNN any time of day that we want. And so that is where the revolution is. The revolution is not in content. Some people make the mistake of thinking, well, you know, the media's changed utterly, so that means all the rules have changed. Not so. In content, we ask, is it right? Is it fair? Is it balanced? It doesn't matter if you're working on a stone tablet or a glass tablet. The rules of content don't change over hundreds and hundreds of years. The audience must have reliable, independent information. It is the only way that a democracy can work. Now, China works without that, but it has an autocratic communist government. Russia works without that, but it has an autocratic government. If you want to live in a dictatorship, you can get away with not having a free press. But in a democracy, if indeed the people rule, they have to have independent information. There's only one way to do that. One of the reasons America is great is because we have the greatest journalism in the world. The book is Truth Worth Telling. Scott Pelley, great to talk to you. Thanks so much. David, so great to be with you. Thank you.